All right. Hello, everyone. My name is Philip Palumbo. I'm the host of the Palumbo podcast, where we provide you with educational information as it relates to investing, investment planning, and business. Today, we have with us Veneta Dimitrova, who is the U.S. Senior Economist at NDR, Ned Davis Research, which is a firm that's been around since the 1980s. She's been with NDR for approximately 15 years and has been in the financial industry for north of 20 years. And we're very, very fortunate to have you here, Vanetta. So thank you for mo- so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. <laughs> Likewise. So Vanetta, so one of the things, uh, my clients, they are typically founders and professionals who are, so they're in business every day and wondering about the economy, et cetera. So as you and I talked about prior to this, why do you think it's important for business people, investors to really understand the economic data points that we're always receiving week after week after week? Well, simply put, they give you the trend of where the general economy is headed, and then you can um, surmise where financial markets are headed. And depending on how you are invested, Right. You can surmise how your portfolio is going to do, right? So this is as simple as that, right? But when it comes to, uh, you know, why it is important to follow economic data and what data is the most important to follow, then it becomes a little hairier, right? Because we get bombarded with reports and data points day in and day out, uh, which, is pe- which is when people like me step in to kind of um, isolate the noise and distinguish trend from single point changes. Uh, If you focus on just a single point change in an indicator, then you're prone to making um, rash decisions, knee jerk reactions. uh, And we can see those in the market sometimes, you know, this, uh, you know, quick response from from the market to like out of consensus, you know, uh, data point. And then when rational thinking sets in, the market may backtrack on whatever the action was in the immediate response, right? But when we follow economic data in its entirety, when we apply a wholesome approach to analysis, then we get the fuller picture and we can better uh, you know, estimate the state of the economy and the direction of markets. So in a nutshell, that's why it's important to follow, to follow all data, but to always keep in mind that one data series or one data point is not as important as the totality of the data or the trends. Yeah, one of the great things that you do, Veneta, you and your team, is when a data point does come out, how you dissect the data point in great detail, because you can see a certain data point and you may analyze it in one way, but the reality is if you really dig deeper, you really say, gosh, that really is either a really good number or it's actually really a bad number. But the, the number right up front may not be what you're looking for. So it's it's great how your team puts that together. And one of the other things that, that I think about as I think about economics and why that's important, whether you're running a business as a founder or a professional or you're an investor, is it kind of can possibly prepare you for either good times and or bad times. So for example, you know, some of the data points are pointing to a slowing down economy. Well, if I'm a business owner that has to buy a truck or two, I may, be, I may hold off on purchasing that truck or two. And same thing if I'm in a business where I build inventory, I may not build up as much inventory if there are signs things are slowing. But the key thing from what you said, which is so true, it's not just looking at one data point. So like, for example, you, you can look at, it's not just, well, the way I look at it, it's not looking at just like one data point, but it's looking at, let's say that, let's say you take uh, the ISM manufacturing number, right? And it's not just looking at like one particular month, 
you may want to look at three or six months and the rate of change of that data point to right. analyze whether it's decelerating or whether it's accelerating. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. This is the right way to approach data analysis, uh, to always look at trends, rates of change, and in the context of the business cycle, where you are right now and what that change may mean. Uh, at a turning point in the business cycle, a jump in an indicator may give you an early um, you know, signal of where the overall economy may be headed. Uh, but if it's uh, you know, mid-cycle uh, and it's like you know, trotting along, then it's just a continuation. You know, it's uh, right. it, it's important in many respects. It's just not just the indicator itself, how it has changed, but also where you are in the business cycle and within that construct, what the change may mean. Exactly. And when you think about it from an investment perspective, the reason why we care about it is because if you do go through a period where you happen to hit a recession, the average the average decline of the S&P 500 is somewhere close to 35% on average. So that's right. why from an investment standpoint, especially if you have new capital, if there are signs that we're potentially moving into some type of recessionary period, you know, that's why as investors, it's important to take it or to be aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's always very exciting, you know, for an economist to try to pinpoint the turning points in the business cycle. We devote so much of our time to doing just that. And we're uh, not always right, obviously, but following the trends, to point us in the direction of that turning point in the business cycle uh, is important because like you said, uh, the market first of all turns before the ter before the business cycle. And then if, it, if we do end up in recession, then the drawback for equities is much bigger than it is in a, a non-recessionary um, cyclical bear market, let's say. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, so on the point of forecasting, right? So. So, you know, we try on our end is to forecast and, and make certain predictions and, and prognosticate, but I've always been extremely straightforward with my clients to tell them that my opinion is not an investment strategy. I think that's the most important thing that investors really need to understand. Maybe if you're anticipating an economy to accelerate, maybe you, you take on a little bit more risk than normal and vice versa. If the economy is going to decelerate, maybe you take a little bit of risk off the table, but you never want to get completely out of one asset class or the other as a result of your opinion about an economy. That's from a financial advisory standpoint, mm -hmm. uh, opinion. So when it comes to forecasting, why is it difficult to forecast with 90% accuracy? Right. So what is your view about you've been in this world as an economist, you're speaking to other economists. So what is your view about forecasting an economy and, and something we should be aware of? Well, forecasting is interesting, right? It's as much a science as it is an art. And we keep repeating that, uh, yet we treat it more as a science and we want to give it, uh, you know, the precision uh, of mathematics, right? A lot of it is just that, uh, because there's a lot of modeling that goes into forecasting. And the econometric techniques that go into model building are so sophisticated now that you can, you can give uh, significant confidence into any for any forecasting that a model does. But at the end of the day, a model's forecast is as good as the data that goes in it and as the uh, people who have constructed the model, right? So right. Um, the bottom line really is that it comes to understanding history because models and forecasts are built 
on our understanding of past relationships, right. right? So if we're talking about the Phillips curve, it's because we've observed it in the past. If we're talking about, like you said, the ISM uh, declining prior to a recession uh, and using that as a signal for an upcoming slowdown, it's because we've seen it before. Could it be the other way, though, that we may see a turn in the indicator without that being, um, you know, uh, something bad for the economy or markets? Sure. Uh, And at that point is when the weight of the evidence becomes important. You focus not just on one indicator, but on a slew of important indicators that confirm or disprove each other. And as the evidence builds is how you get confidence Uh, in a call that you're making, whether it's from a model or from a compilation of indicators um, that support that support the view you're you're expressing. So, um, yeah, forecasting is important, but uh, it is difficult because, like I said, it's based on past relationships. And when it comes to the economy, every once in a while we go through a structural change or we're seeing something that we have not seen before that it's that hasn't manifested yet well enough in the data so that it can be modeled properly, right? At that point is when you when you um, kind of express an opinion and we may speculate more about the future, but that's just what it is. Forecasting is more about uh, clearly pointing in the uh in the fu- towards the future direction uh, and, and let's say rate of growth or rate of change or whatever, right. while the speculation about the future will come because we don't know exactly how um, how that structural change is going to shake out. We may be at a turning point like that just now, right? I mean, we're seeing all this technological change that is coming through and great hope is being pinned on it that it's going to spur this enormous productivity growth that is going to save us from um, uh, you know slower economic growth, and will make uh, you know the fiscal challenges we're facing more tenable, uh, you know things that things of that nature. Maybe that's true. We have seen periods of technological uh, you know advancements in the past. Uh, and we have seen great productivity gains both from from internet and from industrialization and things of that nature. Is AI the same? Is the current technological phase going to give us the same productivity boost? Perhaps, uh, and we're counting on it doing just that. Uh, but we will only know in retrospect whether those expectations uh, have proven correct. Yeah, I think the difference between AI, I do think it is going to be very productive for the economy and for businesses. I could see it in my own personal business already. And the reason why is because like like Microsoft and the way we use Microsoft and have used Microsoft, it's almost like back office help that's made things more efficient, has helped us, but like AI is frontline type technology as robotics is and and uh, and other things that we're going to see in technology that that is going to be more like frontline increase in productivity for companies. I think increasing margins. You may not need as many people as we normally have. So I do think you, you, we, we could we can see that. I think there's a high probability of we see that over the next three to five years, which could increase productivity, which could be good for the economy overall. But obviously, we'll see how that works. But so let's go back to just um, what you said in terms of kind of looking at the holistic numbers in terms of economic data to make a call, whether you think something's going to accelerate the economy or decelerate. So for example, is it makes sense when you say, okay, I have 10 indicators. However, I mean, there's so many indicators out there. I actually look at 29. And let's say we got 10 in Veneta. So if you say, well, seven of them look like they're weakening based on how you analyze weakening. So for that reason, I'm going to make a call 
that the economy is going to slow and maybe in a recession. Is that what you're talking about in terms of how you would look at data? Yes, um, pretty much. Um, you mentioned 10 indicators, and coincidentally, this is exactly the number that we have in a report called the Recession Watch Report. Yes, I, and I watched that report. Right? Yes. Uh, it spans various segments of the economy, from, from employment to uh, credit conditions to manufacturing, services, business and consumer confidence, things of that nature. It also has composite NDR-built models in it, like our recession probability model and the economic timing model, which themselves are uh, you know, composites of other economic data. So when we have a majority of these indicators turn, meaning that they cross our quantitatively uh, you know, estimated recession threshold, is when we will gain more confidence in making a recession call, mm-hmm. right? So uh, at any point in time, you could have one or two of these indicators crossing that uh, recessionary threshold uh, and give you a signal. But when it's not confirmed by the rest of the indicators, then that means that it's simply uh, you know, a disturbance in that, in that segment of the economy that is not um, causing a broad economic slowdown or recession. Uh, Right now, of the 10 that I specifically look at and we at NDR follow, three are uh, on recessionary signals. Um, So we need more than that, right? Uh, Yeah, when you think about it, there is, um, uh, you know, employment that hasn't turned out. Just today, we got the jobless claims again that continue to hover Mm -hmm. around 200,000, right? So layoffs are off the table. As long as that labor market strength persists, it will be very difficult to get a recession. That's one indicator among the 10 on our watch list. Yes, ISM has turned, and yes, the ISM services are showing a notable slowdown there. Uh, and we have the leading, um, the, the conference board's leading economic index um, that has been flashing a recessionary signal for like a year and a half now. But the other indicators have not confirmed, right? So that gives me a hard stop here, right? It tells me, yes, the economy is on a slowing trajectory, but there isn't enough evidence yet to make a recession call. If we keep on seeing those indicators on that report, they're not like all tail indicators, right? There's others also out there. But if we do get you know, more confirmatory evidence, then obviously confidence will build towards you know, making a recession call. Until then, it's a slowdown. And this is what we want to see, right? This is what the Fed is banking on as well, that you know, the economy will slow down Absolutely. and dissipate without a hard, uh, without a hard landing. So why did so many people, including me, make this call that a recession was going to happen in 2023 and it never happened? We were also on the verge, right? I, I remember I last year when we spoke about it, yeah. we had uh, like a 70 or 75% odds of a recession uh, starting sometime in 2023 and it never came to pass, right? right. Well, you have to think of um, what indicators were showing you at that particular time, right? We Of the 10 that I had on that recession watch list, we didn't have a majority of them uh, having turned uh, yet. And then at the time we were thinking about um, the impact of Fed tightening that was uh, supposed to come through right. in a meaningful way right. through 2023 and impact the economy in a negative way. Historically, when the Fed had started tightening, 
two years later, the economy is in recession. That's on average. Uh, but, you know, we did not see that in 2023. The historical relationships that we typically rely on from Fed tightening did not come through. Uh, yes, we did see a deterioration in activity in the, in the very high interest rate sensitive sectors like housing, uh, let's say, and some in manufacturing too. But there was so much uh you know, momentum on service under the under all of this that the other historic that that historical relationship about the the Fed tightening specifically impacting or slowing down growth in the labor market did not come to fruition. Right yeah. there, there was this. The most important one for me was that what we dubbed at NDR the accidental fiscal stimulus because it had it, it had to do with. Um, uh, the the federal government uh, doing the the cola the um, uh, the adjustments the inflation adjustments to uh, to social security let's say those were significant and those look at past inflation uh, to adjust for that in a year when inflation was already slowing down right so so we got that there was also the excess savings from the pandemic that even to this day continue to slosh through the economy and support and support consumer spending so all of these things um supported the cycle on top of um you know discretionary stimulus that, that came through the inflation reduction act the right. chips act that had supported right. capex and 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 um construction of uh, manufacturing facilities specifically, all of these things kept the economy uh, going uh, in, a, in a very big way. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, right? Because when you really think about it, if you look at the data points, the leading indicators were negative for so many months, still are today. Yeah, the inversion of the yield curve, right? You have ISM manufacturing numbers that were negative. Some of the details in the unemployment numbers that I thought were interesting showing signs of some deceleration. But the reality is, is that what you just mentioned, which is the fiscal stimulus, which there was four or five hundred billion dollars of more of a deficit last year, which was, that was the spending that went into the economy. So between that and savings that, that you said, the excess savings from COVID, all of that kind of created that balance to what we saw on the other side, which showed us, gave us signals that, hey, a recession was going to happen. But this piece here. You know, which, by the way, is a big piece because we never had a Fed increase rates and stimulus going in from fiscally. I mean, that's really doesn't normally happen unless you have a economic recession. You get the Fed cutting, and then you got fiscal and monetary together working to to rebuild it. So it was certainly an interesting time, and it goes back to what I said before that you know our opinion is not an investment strategy because if you did stay out of the markets last year because of one's concern about a forecast, you got crushed. So that's it's an important lesson for us as investors for our clients. Vanetta, right. so there's so many great indicators out there. I don't know if great's the right word, but there's so many indicators out there that I enjoy watching, like the leading indicators, I think are really important, the ISM numbers, both on the services side and the manufacturing side. But it's interesting how the last of Mohegans, the services number all of a sudden is starting to weaken now. That's a little concerning, but besides that, so there, there are many indicators that we look at and and just curious, right? Your opinion doing as long as, as long as you have, what are some of your favorite one, two or three indicators that that help you a lot? If that is even a situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, we already spoke about a couple of them, right? I'm, I'm a big fan of the ISM numbers. They're sort of uh, soft data, hard data um, 
indicators. They're survey based of the actual industries and, and the diffusion indices, right? So they basically tell you the breadth of um, the industrial activity, both in manufacturing and in and, and in services. So um, I like them for that for that matter because they because of because they have this soft data tendency. They tend to lead the hard data and can give you a little bit of a lead time to actual turning points in the in the economy. For that reason, they're part of that recession watch report we have, right? So, and Vanetta, can I ask you, so for my audience, what do you mean by ISM numbers? What, what is an ISM number? There were two surveys from the Institute of Supply Management, ISM Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index, and ISM Services Purchasing Managers Index. They they survey uh, 18 um, manufacturing sub-industries on their take on production, new orders, employment, supplier deliveries, their export orders, imports, backlogs, things of that nature. Yeah. And all of these sub subcategories, there are <clears throat> sub-indices that the ISM creates. And the final ISM PMI is a composite of several of them. For manufacturing, it's a composite of uh, production, new orders, employment, inventories, and supply deliveries. While for services, it's a composite of uh, a subset of those, just the um, business activity, uh, new orders, employment, and deliveries, right? So, because there's fewer, less inventories in, in services, obviously. So, um, it's, it's, a, it's a smaller, uh, it's a less important um, thing for services than it is for manufacturing. Mm -hmm. um, so when you look at the final number, uh, it has a midpoint of 50 for both uh, services and manufacturing. If it's above 50, it means more of the industries are expanding. If it's below 50, more of the industries are contracting. So uh, generally a number above 50 would be consistent with economic growth. A number below 50 would be consistent with contraction or slowdown, let's say, because it may not be necessarily, necessarily a contraction. The longer the index stays below 50, obviously the longer the negative undertones in either manufacturing or services, and that can give you, you know, um, you know a pause when you're assessing the overall uh, the overall state of the economy and that is the case right now right for for manufacturing specifically right. The index has been below 50 for quite, for quite a few months. Uh, there's been, uh, you know, reports of, um, you know, the, the employment uh, indice, index specifically, uh, you know, tracking below, tracking below 50. And then when you see that, but then, but then you go ahead and see the BLS employment report producing positive numbers, you try to interpret that. And when, when you look at the comments from the survey takers of the ISM, you see that they're not so much they're not only going for, uh, you know, contracting their labor force by active layoffs. They, the reports themselves mention that there's attrition there. Uh, there is, uh, you know, positions that go unfilled or positions that are vacated, you know, are not replaced. Right. And, and those are, you know, inactive ways of whittling down your labor force. And perhaps this is what we're seeing more of today than in other business cycles, given the... Um, you know, reticence of employers to let people go because they're, they, ha they have had such a hard time filling positions right after the economy reopened after COVID, right? right. So the, 
the, the fact that the labor market remains tight and the difficulty that employers saw in filling open positions after COVID uh, is, uh, you know, giving an extra lifeline, uh, extra long lifeline, I should say, to the current business cycle when it comes to employment. Got it. So the ISM numbers are really, really important numbers. The great data points yes. and how they configure that, the surveys they put out, which is really, really excellent, both for ISM manufacturing and services. So mm-hmm. super important. So, so Vinetta, what is your number one concern about the economy today? Well, I do suffer a little bit from a recency bias, right? So <laughs> I'm going to mention inflation because it came out today. <laughs> right. It is still a concern, right? So um, it has come a great way, a, a, a great deal down from what it was at its peak level in 2002. But uh, at its current level, close to 4%, 3.9% for, for, for core, uh, it, is still, it is still significant. And it's higher than where the Fed wants right. to see it. Right. Right? Right. So um, for me, it still remains a concern. Our outlook is that it will continue to moderate over the course of this year, but it will still remain higher than what we we were used to seeing prior to COVID. Uh, we're seeing it at two and a half to three percent, which is not that far off from its current level, right? And now we're seeing these risk factors out there that are causing the path of disinflation to be slower and perhaps choppier down the road. Uh, and that that will make it harder to get to the 2% uh, target. So the risks to inflation that I mentioned, um, the way I see them right now come from come from three main sources. One is housing, right? We're already seeing a rebound in housing values, existing home prices. And that is typically what feeds into the CP, into shelter CPI with a notable lag. Uh, that was one of the reasons why inflation uh, picked up on a month right. to month basis uh, in uh, in December, right? right. So if, if we continue to see this, uh, you know, pickup uh, and uh, continued rebound in existing home prices that will filter through higher headline and core and core inflation. Um, on the other hand, we're also seeing um, this geopolitical conflicts. Quite a bit of them right now, right? We have the Russia-Ukraine war going on. The conflict in in, in the Middle East is is uh, you know threatening to um, to expand. All of these things are already causing transportation through those regions to circle around. So transportation costs are increasing, and one way or another, that will show up in in, in goods prices. Not yet. But it's a it's an upside risk for the for the near term. And if it ends up disturbing supply chains, uh, you know, I shudder just thinking about what this may what this may mean. Obviously, things have repositioned, and companies are much more aware of where their supplies are coming from. So we're not going to see anything of the COVID magnitude. God forbid. Right, right, but, right. <laughs> but you know, you know, things that cause supply chains to um, you know be disturbed, transportation costs to rise, deliveries to slow. These are all things 
that will come to uh, you know impact goods prices to the upside. Uh, and then the most important of all is that the labor market remains as tight as it is now, and it is causing wage pressures to remain elevated. Uh, well, why that is important is because it continues to support demand to grow at a faster pace than the Fed wants to see. Right. So right now, wage, the the um, average hourly earnings or wage growth is about four percent on a year to year basis, and that is above the three to three and a half percent pace that would be consistent with two percent inflation. Are we going to get to three three and a half? Perhaps, but not in a quick fashion. Right, given that the labor market is as tight as tight as it is. So when when I look at that, it gives me a little bit of a pause when I see you know, markets pricing in a rate cut right in March, right? right? I agree with Maybe you. Maybe we'll get there if the economy slows down, but right. if we do get this muddle through on inflation and risk factors stay there for higher inflation down the road, maybe there'll be a delay there. And we're already seeing that into Fed comments, right? Yeah, and this kind of piggybacks into my last question for you. Mm -hmm. One of the things, so I follow, I follow about 29 economic indicators and mm -hmm. also 11 factors, I call it. And one of the main factors in there is consensus and understanding consensus and, and almost taking the opposite view of that in some respects. In, in your experience, as long as you've been doing this, which is similar to as long as I've been doing this, right? So we think about going into 2023, everybody was calling for a recession and the opposite happened. Coming into 2024, everybody's saying, tell me if you disagree with me, soft landing, Fed's going to cut six times. Right. So what is have you always felt every year that goes by that the view of consensus always is typically wrong in your view? No, not necessarily. Uh, I, I can't really speak about whether that holds in the beginning of every year, but during the year, there's quite a bit of volatility between um, consensus and actual data, right? So when you have economic surprises to the upside, then that may end up being good for good for equities. It means that there Absolutely. is more. It, it means that there is more out there in the data that has not been priced in, right? right. Markets are pricing mechanisms and consensus is usually what's priced into the data, right? But if it's a positive surprise from that, then that means that there is more there that hasn't been priced in, therefore a tailwind for the market. Uh, quite the opposite, if negative surprises pile on, right? Then that means that the economy is slowing faster or is surprising in a negative way than consensus is expecting, which means that there may be repricing to the downside that may need to that may need to happen. So that happens um, you know, continuously throughout the year. It's not only in the beginning, in the beginning of the year. Uh, what you said, though, kind of rang through when it comes to um, earnings expectations. They usually, you know, backed up in the beginning of the year. Uh, maybe it has to do with this innate optimism of businesses and trying to, you know, portray uh, themselves to the clients in the best light possible. Right. Usually when we have, you know, strong earnings expectations in the beginning of the year, a lot of that is being, um, you know, um, corrected down uh, as we Most go through, through the quarters, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, 
It is it is true more for earnings than it is for than it is for uh, the economy and the general consensus. You are true though that it is true that if if earnings are uh, you know expected to be more positive in the beginning of the year, it must be that business owners uh, and uh, CEOs are more optimistic themselves in the beginning of the year. Right. Um, as logical as that may sound, I, I really don't have the data to to support it at right. this point. Maybe it is true. I yeah. have to I have to look into it. <laughs> I, yeah, I find, no, I find it to be interesting uh, when you think about the last couple of years. I find this to be one of the most fascinating times from an economic standpoint than we've ever seen, just because of the imbalances of looking at the data point and pointing at one way and the opposite happening and vice versa. So uh, we'll see what happens. It's going to be very, very interesting. But, Benetta, you are, as always, amazing and, and insightful with great perspectives and educating my audience. I really appreciate your time today, like always. It's been a pleasure, Phil. Um, I look forward always to speaking with you. All right. Thank you very much.